Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson. On today's show, we've got two British rock superstars. In the second half, the man who's best known as the lead singer with King Crimson, but has also collaborated with Dave Stewart and Tom Robinson, and was a member of 21st Century Schizoid Band and Level 42. He is British musician and producer Jacko Japsik. But first, the British folk musician, singer, songwriter Dave Cousins, who led the Straubs from the folk clubs to a major record deal and had Gus Dudgeon and Tony Visconti produce and arrange their first album, having newly signed to A&M Records. The Straubs went on to major chart success in the 1970s until Dave switched direction and worked for 20 years in commercial radio. His first love, though, is singing and writing songs. I asked him how he got into songwriting. You won't believe this, but I was watching Ready, Steady, Go one night and on came a guy wearing a, a sort of a, cloth, a cap with a guitar, say, written on it, This Machine Kills, and I think he's ripping off Woody Guthrie. It was Donovan, and he's saying, Catch the Wind. And I thought, good God, if that bloke can write songs, so can I. And it was literally that inspiration which gave me the, the idea of writing songs. And I haven't stopped since. Having had that inspiration, Dave, how did you actually start about doing it? Because writing a song is not an easy thing. It's not trivial. You've, you know, there are, there's a lot of skill involved. Well, I'm, looking back on those early songs, I actually published a book called Secret Stories and Songs uh, about three or four years ago where I put every lyric I'd ever written into it. And looking back on those early ones, they were very naive. They were a bit beatly at times. Uh, but by and large, I just started suddenly. I had no, I'd never written a word before. I just started to write songs. I picked up a guitar, found a tune, and came up with the songs to it. And looking back on them now, I regret some of them. I, well, I don't regret them. They were, as I say, very naive and very very much in the vein of I Love You, Babe, and etc. They were very poppy songs. But very rapidly I got into writing about what was happening in the world around me. And that was what began to change everything. But you started as a banjo player and you were playing bluegrass. Yes, I know. It seemed very incongruous now looking back at it. But I heard an album called from the Newport Folk Festival and I heard Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs and I was absolutely mesmerised by Earl Scruggs' banjo playing and decided I wanted to become a banjo player. So I bought myself a banjo, and when I listened to it, it was all moving so fast that I couldn't work out how on earth he was doing it. So I slowed the record player down to 16 and whatever it was, half speed, and then I could hear the licks that he was playing. So I taught myself to play the banjo by listening to Earl Scruggs at half speed. Yeah, clever. And I, I bumped into him at the Edmonton Folk Festival about six or seven years ago. And he'd come off stage and he was waiting out all alone, standing by the side of the road, waiting for his bus to take him back to the hotel. I went up to him and said, Mr. Scruggs, um, I'm one of your biggest fans all the way from England. I learned to play banjo by slowing, the, slowing your record down to half speed. He looked at me puzzled and said, I'm playing in Dublin next week. And that was the end of our conversation because um, his bus came along. <laughs> <laughs> be lovely to get part two of that conversation sometime. Yes, I was very disappointed, but I'll never meet him again now, sadly. No, he passed he's, he's passed away, sadly. But why bluegrass, Dave? I found bluegrass music really infectious. Uh, the, the banjo playing and the instrumentation was unbelievable. T wonderful skill these, the American players had. 
But it did sound a bit incongruous, uh, three guys from West London uh, playing banjo, mandolin and guitar and singing the Blue Ridge Mountain Blues. I've got the Blue Ridge Mountain Blues, going to see my old dog trained, I'm going to hunt the possum where the corn tops blossom in the Blue Ridge far away. It sounded rather odd. Well, the Blue Ridge was very, very far away. It was. And gradually it began to come into the act, one or two songs at a time, until it began to overwhelm the, the bluegrass banjo, and the banjo just sort of disappeared and I stopped playing it. Hmm. And you were playing in a band called the Strawberry Hill Boys, which was really named after the teacher training college in Strawberry Hill. No, where that, you that's were... a misnomer. We rehearsed in Strawberry Hill. I went to school in Twickenham oh, okay. to, uh, and to Thames Valley Grammar School, uh, which is now Waldegrave School for Girls. Uh, but I went there and I met a, used to go over to Eel Pie Island, the legendary Eel Pie Island. And I started to, I met up with a young lady who ran the cloakroom of all places. And her name was Susie Shan. She was the daughter of Ben Shan, a very famous American painter. And we became very friendly. And she said, would you like to come round to my, my flat? And I went round there one night. And she played me all these wonderful old songs off of the Harry Smith collection. And I was mesmerized by them. And she started to teach me claw hammer guitar. And it was really exciting to listen to and but uh, we, when we did our we rehearsed every friday night in a pub called the london apprentice in isleworth used to just get together for a session with a load of other musicians and somebody came up and said would we like to do a, a gig and well we'd never done a gig and they said well what do you, we'll put you in melody maker what are you called and we i suddenly thought well what are we okay well we rehearse in strawberry hill the band we were listening to were the Rocky Mountain Boys or the Foggy Mountain Boys, the Stony Mountain Boys. So I said, the Strawberry Hill Boys, that'll be our name. And so it was. And easy as that. Yeah. Yeah. And how long did the Strawberry Hill Boys last? I, I would say about two years. And gradually we became more and more popular. I applied to the BBC to do the audition. And as much to our astonishment, we passed the audition and I thought, well, I got a letter from the BBC saying, you've passed your audition. And I thought, well, now what do I do? So I looked in Radio Times and I looked at the most popular programme of the, of the time, which was Saturday Club on a Saturday morning, picked up the phone and called Jimmy Grant, who was the producer of the programme. Much to my astonishment, I was put through to him. I said, Mr Grant, my name is David Cousins. We have just passed our audition with the BBC. Would you please have a listen to our tape? And half an hour later, he came back on the phone and said, right, you're on Saturday Club in two weeks' time. Wow. Wow. And that was with the Beatles was on. It was the Chris Barber Jazz Band. Uh, I can't remember the other names on it, but they were all top names. And suddenly it was Dave Cousins and Tony Hooper. You must have felt amazing. It was. And then we did that show. And then they said, we want you back in a month's time. By then we changed our name to the Strawberry Hill Boys. And it just it took off from there. After Donovan, uh, you then started to record your first album with Sandy Denny. Yes, we did. Uh, I met her in the Troubadour Folk Club in Earl's Court, went down there one night, and there she was sitting on a stage, on a, on a stool. I can see her to this day wearing a, a long white dress, a white hat, and uh, she had a Gibson Hummingbird guitar. I can still see it now. And she was singing an old Gaelic song called Fira Barter. And after we, I, she came off stage, I went up to her and said, can I introduce myself? And she glared at me, because Sandy did glare. Mm -hmm. And she said, who are you? And I said, Dave Cousins. 
I said, uh, do you fancy joining a group? He said, what's the name of the group? I said, the Straubs. She said, yeah, all right. It was really just as casual as that. Um, but we were getting quite well known by then. Uh, and so we rehearsed with her for, we went round to her house one, one night the, about the following week. I went around there at seven o'clock in the evening and at seven o'clock in the morning we were still singing. I'm not exaggerating in the slightest. It was mesmerising. I'd come up with all these new songs. Nobody had ever heard them. And we just fitted together like a pair of gloves. And the harmonies were beautiful. And it just worked. And we rehearsed for about six months and then said, well, we'd better make some demos. Went to Cecil Sharp House, the headquarters of the English Folk Dance and Song Society, and recorded some demos. Uh, somehow they found their way to Denmark, of all places, and the boss of Sonic Records in Denmark said, oh, you are the best thing I've heard since the Beatles, and I'd like to sign you to my label. And so we signed a contract, and off we went to Denmark, to Copenhagen, to record the very first album with Sandy Denny. Wow, and what a voice Sandy Denny has. I mean, I mean, much missed, obviously, and then went off to join Fairport after that, but you and her together, those two voices must have been quite magical. It, it, it is magical, and that album, uh, we put it out, we reissued it some years ago now, and it was our best-selling album by far, uh, and it, not, not of all time, but in, in terms of our own record label. And it, it's, it's a, I listen to it now, and it's, it's still as fresh as the day that we recorded it. Mm. So she went off to Fairport, and then you signed to A&M Records. In fact, you were the first UK act to sign to A&M, the Herb we, Albert we, label. We were, yes. The, that record with Sandy Denny found its way to A&M Records. Herb Albert and Jerry Moss ran, uh, were the A&M of the A&M, and they listened to the songs and said they're wonderful. Uh, we want to sign the band to A&M. And so suddenly out of the blue, there was this phone call saying, we want to sign you to A&M. I'd never heard of A&M Records. It was a brand new label. Mm. And uh, we were the first British band signed to them. They they sent us $15,000 and said, we want you to make a single. I said, I was speaking to them on the phone fairly, fairly regularly. I said, well, who's going to produce it? They said, oh, go and find yourselves a producer. And it so happened that Tony Hooper, who was my partner at the time, lived in a flat in in North London. And on the ground floor was a young engineer from Decca Records called Gus Dudgeon. And we played our songs to Gus. He said, I love that particular song. That's the one I want to do as a single. And it was called, a song called Oh How She Changed. And that became our very first single on the very first album back in 1969. And the arrangement was done by Tony Visconti. And so it was the first time the two most famous producers of what became the 1970s had ever worked together on a record. Sadly for us, it was before anybody had ever heard of Elton John and David Bowie that they went on to produce. Did you realise at that time who you'd managed to land? Because to get Gus Dudgeon and Tony Visconti, I mean, wow, I mean, no, that was incredible. No, they weren't known. It, it was Gus Dudgeon's second record uh, production and it was Tony Visconti's second arrangement for a record in the UK. Incredible. The first, the first arrangement he did was Flowers in the Rain by The Move, mm. where he put some flutes on it. And the next arrangement he did was our single. Yeah, stunning. What, what a great success. And of course, Tony Visconti comes back into your life later. We'll talk about that more uh, as we go through. You were um, listening at this time to a lot of new songs, uh, new releases from America, which was starting I, to I change was, you, 
change your influence? A&M were sending me lots of records to listen to because mm. they think, well, that'll influence your songwriting, and it certainly did. And one of the records I received at the time was a, the album by Love. And it wasn't as though I loved the whole album, but I loved one song called Alone Again All, which I thought was absolutely mesmerising. And it had mariachi trumpets in it, it had Spanish guitar in it, it was so subtle and beautiful. Even now, occasionally I get the record out and put it in the car in the CD player, and I'll play it half a dozen times at full volume over and over again, and I never tire of it. Love were interesting because they had a lot of people who were really following them. I mean, the Stones and the Yardbirds, for example, were very interested in what they were doing, as were you in the Straubs. Yeah, um, but as I said, I, I didn't really like the, the rest of the album too much. It was quite rocky, and I was still very much in a folk mode at the time. And I remained in a folk mode, even though we made our first album, I still felt that I, I was a folk singer, and we didn't want to upset our folk fans that we built up in, in all around the country. And so a lot of the singing, I mean, I listen back to it now, I was still singing in very much in a folk mode and in a folk manner. And the songs I was writing at the time, I, I, I was trying to write a folk song. I thought, I want to, I want to write a song that, that people will forget who wrote it and it will become a song that just goes around and is sung on every, in every pub you go to, in every uh, coach outing you go on. It's one of those songs. And what I didn't realise was that folk songs went into the public domain and didn't earn any money from publishing. So I very rapidly changed my idea of, of being a folk singer. Yeah, it's time to make some money. Were you under any pressure from the record company to go in a particular direction? Did they want you to become more rocky and less folky? No, that was the very, very bizarre thing with A&M Records. They just let us get on with it. We made the very first album and then they phoned up and said, we want a, a second album. And they sent us an awful lot of money, something like $45,000, and we made the first album and spent all of it. And we then said, well, we've got to make another album. Can you send us some more money? They said, well, we sent you money for three albums. Oh. Well, I didn't. I didn't. They didn't make it clear. It was always a very vague arrangement. So but what happened then to the my... second and third albums that should have been funded by the money that was spent on, on making the first? Yes, we'd spent a lot we on spent the spent a lot. We had to go off to Denmark to make the second album because it was owned by our friend Carl Knudsen and the studio came free. So we went back to Denmark and we made an album called Dragonfly. By then, I'd fallen out with Gus Dudgeon uh, because he kept mixing my voice down in the mix. He said, uh, your voice is too bad. It can stay down. He said, they can read the lyrics on the album sleeve. I thought, oh, oh great, thanks. That kind of gone down very well with you, Dave. It so you, you and he fell out. No. So anyway, we 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 become very friendly with Tony Visconti, and so off we went to Denmark with Tony to make the second album, which was called Dragonfly. Mm -hmm. And then somebody came into our lives through that album, because when we put the first album out, we we were asked to go and do John Peel's Top Gear program on a Sunday afternoon, and we'd done a song called The Battle on the very first album, and we wanted to do that on on. The on top gear, Tony Visconti came along with us and he said, well, you need to have an organ player. and I've got just a guy you need. It's a guy called Rick Wakeman. And he brought Rick along. We met up with him and he played the organ beautifully, went in the pub after the show 
had a few beers and exchanged addresses and said, well, I'll see you sometime. Well, when we came back from Denmark, we made a track called Division of the Lady of the Lake on the Dragonfly album and realised we needed a piano player. So I phoned Rick up and he came along and played on the album and it became very, very popular. And the next thing I know is that I'd invited Rick to come and join the band, which he, he was shaking like a leaf when I invited him. It was really strange. He was very, very nervous, but he accepted immediately. I said, well, our next gig is in Paris in, just, in two weeks' time. He said, oh, I can't make it, unfortunately. I said, why? What are you doing? He said, I'm getting married. I said, well, that's nice. Where are you going on honeymoon? He said, we're not going on honeymoon. We haven't got any money. We can't afford to go. So I said, well, I've got a good idea. Why don't you come to Paris for your honeymoon? And so Rick's first gig with us was in Paris in the rock and roll circus in a, in a big circus top, just in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower, where we had to accompany circus acts. It was his honeymoon. <laughs> it was his honeymoon. Uh, his missus was okay with that, I guess. Well, she had to be. Yeah, so she didn't mind. We, we, we all became very best of friends. But you became a very good friend with Rick Waitman, didn't you? I mean, that's become an enduring friendship. Very much so. We, we exchanged emails a couple of days ago again. I was catching up with him and I'd sent him a couple of records and he, he said, I'll promise to send you my new album when it comes out. We still stay in touch all the time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, let's move forward now to the third album from The Witchwood. Yeah, well, that was the actually the last album we made with Rick. And he was in and out of the studio all the time. We didn't know where he'd gone. And gradually it began to filter out that he was rehearsing and practising with Yes. So it became inevitable that he would leave. But one of the songs that really sticks in my mind is the Shepherd song. Because uh, I'd been listening to Alone Again Or, as I explained just now. And I loved that. And so I'd written this song called The Shepherd Song, which had a sort of flamenco guitar feel to it. And at the end, I played this long extended flamenco guitar, cod flamenco guitar feel, and Rick played a mellotron. And then it just so happened in the studio, at Air Studios, there was the first ever Moog in the country. And Tony Visconti and Rick went and experimented with it and found a piccolo trumpet sound on it. And Rick did a sort of mariachi trumpet sound that I'd heard on Alone Again All By Love over the Mellotron strings. And that was the first example of Rick Wakeman with his multiple keyboard rig. And the next thing you know, the album came out, Rick went away and joined. Yes, the album went into the charts. Uh, we were, everybody was happy. Um, I was disappointed, but it didn't matter. We'd got into the charts with the album. But that song still comes back to me, and I listened to it only the other day. And it's glorious to hear those sweeping strings at the end from the Mellotron with Rick soloing away on the piccolo trumpet. It's absolutely beautiful. Dave, that's really a song about seduction, but it's done incredibly subtly. It is. It was the first time I'd taken my then-girlfriend out for a day out in the country. And... We went and rolled in the long grass, as I put in the song, but it's uh, it's very subtle. And I do like to write songs that have got, if you like, a double meaning, where they, they, people have to think, well, what is he getting on about there? What is, what's he talking about? Then it can be taken one of two ways. And I, it's something I, I, I introduce in the songs quite a lot. Yeah, and sometimes you don't actually get all of it from the first listen. It's not until you've listened to the song several times you pick up on all of the, the subtleties, and I think that's a good example of that. It is. I, I'm, I was very proud of that song. It, it, it was, 
It took a lot of writing. I remember going into the spare bedroom and lying on the floor and writing it. Don't ask me why I, I, I remember that, but it's one of those things that I... It comes back to me exactly where it was written. It was written in Hounslow, where we had a house in Hounslow. And just going in that spare bedroom and lying on the floor with a notebook and pencil and writing it straight off. That was a very productive lying on the floor. It was. It was indeed. <laughs> so you, you went into a really very commercially successful time now, uh, 1972. You've got singles and albums and you're selling records right around the world and having hits. People don't realise this, but when we went off to tour in America, we sold more records in America and Canada than we did in the UK. And we were selling quite a lot of records in the UK then. When I look back on it now, for example, the Grave New World album sold 100,000 copies and so did Bursting at the Seams, which are extraordinary figures now, looking at the sales figures from the BPI, which I get regularly nowadays. Bob Dylan went to number one with his latest album with 28,000 sales of a CD, mm. which is unbelievable. And there we were selling 100,000 in those days. But in America, we were selling a quarter of a million albums, and it was extraordinary how, how we took off over there. What they loved in America was the intensity of the performance because the songs that we were performing were songs like Grave New World or New World as it is, and they'd never heard any anything like it. And there was no talking in between in the songs. I, I, we just went from one song to another, often linking two or three songs together. It was a very, very intense experience. Jerry Moss of A&M Records actually said that we're signed to the label. We were the band that he went to see more than any other band. And despite the fact we didn't have a hit single with them, they loved what we did. And they, as I said, they just let us get on with the albums. They never dictated in any way, we want an album, we want a rock album. And they always said we'd love a hit single. And so that was always on our minds. They never, ever pressured us. You talk about hits and, of course, Lay Down, which is you know one of your most famous songs, was a, a top 20 hit, number 12. It was, and it's still played to this day. Dear Ken Bruce on Radio 2 plays it, and so does Jeremy Vine. It's extraordinary how the song has survived at the, the test of time. And it came about as coming down from, from a gig in the north of England down to the West Country, and uh, somebody had given me a magic mushroom, and I didn't know what to do with the thing, so I chopped it up and put it in a bowl of motorway soup, picked up the guitar in the van, and I couldn't stop playing the chords for Lay Down. And so that's how that song came about. But I had a little cottage in the country down in Devon, and I went down there and just sat there looking out at the, f the fields and the sheep in the fields. It came to me that it was by still waters I lay down with the lamb, the 23rd Psalm. It was inspired by the 23rd Psalm, although it's not in any way the 23rd Psalm. You were into a green and wonderful period, but in fact it did come to a grinding halt in 1978 when your management decided to wind up the band. So what on earth were they thinking? Well, the curious thing was that they'd insisted that we left A&M Records and we went to another label run by management of Deep Purple and the band and I'd become very friendly with Roger Glover of Deep Purple. That was how we came to be signed to them. And those albums, after we'd left A&M, they still went in the US Billboard 200 in, in America, but they didn't sell anywhere near as well as, as the A&M records did. And then in the end, we, we decided to leave them. We went to Arista Records and signed with Clive Davis. 
The tragedy there was we made one album and Clive said, would I go over to America and do a radio promotion tour? And I was up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, waiting to do a radio interview that morning. I had a call about eight o'clock in the morning for our management in the UK saying that Sandy Denny had died. Mm. And I was absolutely distraught about it. And I managed to get through the day. But I phoned Clive Davis up and said, I'm sorry, Clive, but I'm going back to England. I'm too upset about this and I've got to go to the funeral. He understood, but he was disappointed. But then we thought, well, we'll make another album for Arista. And it was the best album possibly we've ever made. And I've got a copy here beside me now. And it, it was called Heartbreak Hill. We'd just finished the album, and about a month later, I had a call from our management in London. Can you come up to the office? Went up there, and Mike Dolan said, uh, we've decided to wind up the band. We're, not, we're going to wind it up. And I said, well, it's not your band to wind up. He said, well, we're, we're drawing our financial support. Well, considering the financial support was £70 a week each at the time, I earned a lot more money from PRS. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to keep going. Sure. There wasn't a lot of investment in it. But they claimed, and I, I've got to be very careful what I say, they claimed that we owed them a lot of money, which was absolute rubbish. But anyway, they decided to wind up their band. And I said, well, what about the album? They said, oh, forget it. So I was absolutely distraught. We had an offer from Elton John's company, Rocket Records, to sign with them. They offered us £80,000. But... I, I weighed up my balances and I thought, well, that £80,000 is going to go in paying off the studio costs for the album. I got into the idea of commercial radio. I loved the idea. I'd written the winning application for a license for Devonair in the West Country. And I thought, I'm going to go into radio. And out of the blue, I was offered the job of program controller of Radio Tees one day. And the next day, we were offered the contract with Rocket Records. And I said, nope, I'm going into the radio business. And I turned the contract down. The band were absolutely disgusted with me. But I went into radio. And for 20 years, I had the happiest time of my life. Dave, that's where you and I met. Where we, where indeed, it was. The curious thing was, it, I, I got the job. I'd actually been working, producing radio shows for Danish radio for about six years, once a week out of the BBC studio. So I knew all the BBC producers very, very well in, and the head of Radio 1, etc. They were all friends of mine. I loved the idea of radio. I'd written the winning application for Devonair Radio, but I hadn't actually worked in a radio station as such. But Toby Horton, who was the boss of Radio Tees, liked the idea of having me as the programme controller. But the curious thing was when I got there for the first day, my secretary came into the office and said, do you want to do the mail first or do you want to do the schedule? I said, no, put your notebook down. What do I have to do? And she looked at me in absolute astonishment. She said, well, you run the station. I said, well, what does that mean? She said, well, you're in charge of the music, you're in charge of all the DJs, and you're in charge of the news. I said, oh, okay. Nobody had told me what I had to do. The IBA, the Independent Broadcasting Authority, were very reticent about the idea of having a rock singer as, as a programme controller. After six weeks of listening to the radio station, I began to understand it, how it all worked, very, very gently began to change things how I wanted them. And then that's when we met, when you applied for a job at Radio Tees, and I think you were doing hospital radio in Newcastle at the time, came in, I thought, 
I like the sound of his voice and I think he's got great presence and I think he'll do extremely well. And you came and joined us. We had a very, very happy relationship. We did, Dave, and I'm always grateful to you. I mean, that time you called me, I was just about to go on holiday to Scotland and you called and I was coming out of the house and, and then you, you called. And so I joined Radio Tees and did overnights and then, you know, very quickly moved into um, uh, afternoons and then to mornings. I have huge, huge affection for Radio Tees and for you and that whole time. It was a brilliant team we had there actually i think we, we were doing some not outrageous things we were doing very adventurous things for a very small station it was not a very small station it was a medium-sized station the thing you forget is that um, radio tees had a weekly reach of 50 percent, which meant that every other person across the whole region listened i mean everybody listened and i i discovered this you know i'd go to the pub and, and people would know who you were from your voice you'd order up a cut of pints and they go oh you, i know who you are it had such impact on the whole region it did. And what I, I tried to do was to make sure that if a, a DJ left the station, I didn't just get a clone in to replace him. I made sure that I got a personality in. And that was my, my objective in the whole time I was there. I absolutely adored my time there. It was over two years and it was wonderful. As you say, you wrote the winning application for Devonair and then you left Radio Tees and went back to Devonair, I think, as managing director. Yeah, I did. I was there for six years. And then we sold it. It was my bright idea to go and talk to Nigel Wormsley, who was the boss of Capital Radio, and say that we've been offered the chance of being bought out by GWR, but I'd rather you bought us. And so we, Devonair became Capital Radio's first acquisition. And, of course, a lot of acquisitions followed. I mean, what was it like having Capital as your owner? Challenging. The board of Devonair had given me a brief which said, we don't care what you do, just make a profit. We don't care how you do it. When Capital Radio came in, they found that I was running the, the Exeter Air Show, I was running the Devon Motor Show, all as subsidiaries of Devonair Radio. And that was what was making the profit. I went from a no, £150,000 loss to a £75,000 profit in five years. And my God, it took some work. Mm. Um, but Capital Radio said, you can't be doing these air shows and motor shows. You've got to concentrate on advertising. That's where the money is. Unfortunately, it wasn't. The small stations just could not generate enough revenue to survive and without being taken over by somebody else. Well, we got taken over, but they just could not understand why we couldn't make enough money from re- advertising revenue. And so we parted company. And a year after, I uh, wrote the application that took Devonair away from Capital Radio, much of their shock. I got my revenge, if you like. And I don't use it as revenge, but I got my word back again. People phoned me up after that and said, will you come and do our application? We were having to reapply for our license. Will you come and do ours? I said, why do you want me? They said, well, we don't want you on the other side. One of the things that's amazing about those early days of commercial radio when it was called ILR was the freedom. I remember you gave me a four-hour slot on Saturday night to do a sort of soft rock show, which was called Rock Me Gently after the Andy Kim record. And I played every single track of my own choice. Now, of course, commercial radio now is controlled completely and the presenters have absolutely no influence at all over what they play. To me, that's a terribly retrograde step. I entirely agree. And um, when I was in the, as a consultant to RTL, I used to monitor other stations and see what their 
playlist was, I was astonished when I did Capital Gold to find that their playlist, they, they only had 700 records on their playlist, of which they only played 400 at any one time. And I thought, my God, it's so limited and restricted. How can you survive like that? There was no element of surprise in it. And I don't think I didn't listen to your program. If I've heard something I didn't like, I would have told you. Let the people play the records and produce a program that flows. And that's the whole point of, of what I learned from the record business that I brought into radio, is to make the radio station flow. People want to stay listening because there's an element coming up. And one of the challenges with radio is that you can either be a hearer of the radio or a listener to the radio. And at any time, you, you, you experiment next time you get in the car and put the radio on. Sometimes you'll find yourself listening to it. Sometimes you'll realise that you've only been hearing it and you haven't necessarily been listening to what was going on. My job was to make sure that it was interesting enough that people listened to it rather than heard it. That's a really good way, I think, of defining it, because probably now more listening is actually hearing as opposed to listening to commercial radio, because it's almost oral wallpaper. I wanted to just mention one other thing about radio, and that is I do think that when you were program controller at Radio Tees, you did occasionally sneak off to the, not sneak, but you went off to the Dovecourt Arts Centre and the Darlington Arts Centre and did the occasional gig, even while you were an executive running a radio station. And I don't see why I shouldn't do that. I thought it was great that you did that. We, we all love the fact you did that. I didn't get do it for money. Uh, in fact, I didn't. I think I didn't take any money from it. I think I gave it to the people I was playing with. Mm. But it was uh, just I. Um, I hardly ever played music at all in that period, and Capital Radio couldn't understand what what I would what I did when they uh, Nigel Wormsley said one day, "But where are you going on holiday? What are you doing for your holiday?" I said, "I'm going to New York. I'm going to play my guitar for two weeks." He said, you can't do that. You're supposed to be on holiday. I said, well, it is a holiday. <laughs> he just couldn't. He said, well, I go sailing. I said, well, I don't. I don't sail. But what I did was when I was in New York, I looked up all my contacts in radio, went and talked to the stations and learned an awful lot about programming radio stations from going to talking to them. We were talking earlier about Rick Wakeman playing on the vision of the Lady of the Lake. And The Ferryman's Curse was 45 years later, the sequel to it. Uh, and I, People have always said, well, what happens next in the story? And so I decided to write what happened next in the story. One of those ones where I actually decided to write about something and had a specific target. It was a very bleak idea that the ferryman comes back to take back his daughter. And it's a very dark story. And I went to Brussels and I saw an exhibition of paintings by Gaston Boguet. And I loved them. And they all had this strange figure. Every painting he did had this strange silhouette, fig silhouette figure in a top hat in, in black. And I thought it was a lovely idea. But it is a very bleak cover. Hmm. Uh, and the song was bleak. Uh, but the album I was really thrilled with actually went back into the prog chart in the UK, the official prog charts. So there we were, 45 years back in the charts again in the UK. So I was absolutely thrilled with it. I'm, I'm working on a new album now, but that is really totally different. And it, 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 I started to write the songs about four months ago when the lockdown came in. And I haven't played so much guitar for a long, long time. But the songs started to come out, and I was, I'm was i now putting the album together and got the running order together, the songs are written. 
But now I begin to realize how dark and bleak they are. And it has been a very dark and trying time. It's a bit of a challenge. And it, the album's called Strange Times. It won't be out until later this year or maybe even the beginning of next year. Okay, well, that's great to hear there's a new, a new Straub's album coming out, Strange Times, sometime maybe later this year, next year. What's it like doing an album in lockdown? It must be quite a different process. It's an extremely difficult challenge. It's being produced by Blue Weaver, who took over from Rick Wakeman in the Straubs all those years ago. Blue Weaver went off, left us and joined the Bee Gees band and played on seven consecutive number one singles in the USA. Unbelievable. Yep. Uh, with the Bee Gees. And, uh, but Blue is producing the album, but he lives in Germany now. Our drummer lives in Portugal. He's not able to get to us and we can't get to him. Uh, and so we're all totally separated. And uh, what we're doing, uh, with our bass player, I put together templates of the songs, which are just me and a guitar uh, and a click track. And then they've been sent over to Blue, who's put a bit of a drum track on. I've sent one of the songs off to South Africa to a bass player I know over there, because I did a tour of South Africa in January. Yes, very um, successfully. I mean, I saw the stuff on Facebook. I mean, you had, you had big audiences and huge appreciation. I know. <laughs> I nice, amazed. very nice. Must be very reassuring. It was. Uh, I knew that we'd sold records there in the 1970s because we were told about it, but I had no idea how many. And when 400 people turn up to see just me with a guitar, I was astonished. Well, but I was, it was very flattering. Shows the affection. Very, very enjoyable. But yeah. I met this bass player, Scott Schubert, absolutely astounding player. And he plays on one of the tracks, so he, he sent his track back from South Africa. Uh, we've got a keyboard player uh, is up in Lincolnshire, the wilds of Lincolnshire. Dave Lambert, our guitar player, lives in the Isle of Sheppey. And Chaz Cronk lives in London. But we're sending tracks all the off to Blue in Germany, all contributing our bits. And then it sends it back, and I listen to it and say, OK, I'll now put a bit more on there. And uh, it's now time to put piano on there. It's all being done bit by bit and fragmented. But what's turning out is absolutely extraordinary. And uh, no Gus Dudgeon to mix you down this time? No, but we got Blue mixing it down. The first song, Strange Times, I listened to it yesterday, and he, he put a, a limiter across the whole, uh, when he sent it to me, I sound as though I'm on a ventilator. Oh dear, that's not so good. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wheezing away, so I've told him he's got to ease it off. Quite right. And you've written all the songs for the album, Dave? Nearly all of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, m with most of the Straub's album, you wrote the majority, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very exciting. And, and what about touring? I mean, obviously you can't tour at the moment, but I mean, bands are starting to announce tours for 2021. Well, we, we've got shows set up. We had a, a cruise cancelled on us, which is understandable, uh, in April. That was supposed to be happening. That's now been put off to 2022 mm -hmm. because they can't see themselves getting a cruise together again for next year. We've had a big show we were doing near Southampton, one of the biggest fees we've had in years, and that was cancelled for this year, but they they paid us up front, and so we, they're carrying that forward to next year, and that's a huge show. And so it's very exciting, but it's it's frustrating at the same time because we won't be able to get out and play the, the new songs to people. I, I don't always go on and do a whole new album. We do one or two songs in a set and gradually work it in that way. 
But well, it's, think, it's very exciting to make a new album and go out and talk about it. I'm, I'm sure that when you do tour, you'll have the fans there. People have waited 40 years to see you and turned up, so I'm sure they can wait another year or two uh, well, until you get on the road. There's a few dropping off the cliff as we go along at the same time. <laughs> well, yeah, let, let's hope not too many do that. But no, no, new album, very exciting. Great you're going to be on tour. So you've got a lot in the pipeline. You've got a lot coming up, really. A lot coming up, yes. Mm. Uh, the, the, oh, the re-releases are coming out from, through Cherry Red. Very exciting, and I can't tell you too much, but there's a deal going on with A&M at the moment as well, so that'll be very exciting. Back to where you started. Back to where we started, yeah. Extraordinary. Dave Cousins, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. That's Dave Cousins, and we look forward to that new material from Dave on Cherry Red Records and hopefully more gigs next year. You're listening to Podcast Radio. King Crimson have undergone numerous lineup changes over the years, with Robert Fripp the only constant member of the group. Jacko Jatsik joined as lead singer in 2013. When I met Jacko, a new three-CD box set of King Crimson's gigs in Mexico City had just been released. I asked him what made the gig so memorable. I personally had not played in Mexico before, and um, I've never witnessed uh, a crowd responding in the way that they did, let alone been at the receiving end. Of it and it was it was extraordinary. We played we played this venue called the Metropole, which is is very similar uh, in style and look to Hammersmith. So it's about three and a half thousand people, and we sold out five nights, and uh, they just went nuts. But in the most kind of respectful way, you know how a, a crowd will take on a kind of unique identity, and they'll recognise an intro, and they'll, <clears throat> for instance, um, the kind of iconic elegiac guitar line that comes in uh, at the beginning of Starless was greeted with this unbelievable roar uh, what was particularly unusual was that they every time Robert played it they kept roaring each time he played it you know not, not just the first time when they recognised it so it was an amazing set of shows I think we all felt that at the time so uh, that's why it got earmarked I think we we record every show or multi-track and, um, and film every show. When you get that sort of response, obviously it's positive for the band, but how mm. does it make you feel and how does it change your performance when you get that sort of euphoric feedback? I think it's a confidence thing, you know, especially when there's elements of improvisation in, in what you do. It, 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 it kind of makes you relax and it makes you kind of go for stuff that you might not in a different situation. Why did King Crimson, do you think, walk away from blues? And, and, and really, they were influenced more by classical music. Yeah, perhaps. I just think that was, you know, that's Robert's history. He studied classical music and listened to Bartok and uh, didn't, you know, played guitar. In a sense, he came from a, a kind of tradition, because I know he played um, at the Majestic Ballroom in, um, in Bournemouth when he was a kid. Um, but yeah, he wasn't. He he just had a different set of influences, and and it and it lent the the, the music a completely different vibe and atmosphere. So when did you first meet Robert? What was that occasion? Oh, when did I meet him? Oh, well, this is uh, many 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 years later. Um, I'd met uh, I, in the eighties. I I I wrote some songs, co-wrote some songs that were quite successful, and then publishers being publishers much like the film industry try and get you to, to collaborate with other people who've been successful this kind of 
nonsense. Because they think it's going to sell yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's, it's a nonsensical idea, actually. Um, and I was given a list of, of potential collaborators, and I really didn't want to write with any of them. Two names struck out uh, as being, you know, interesting. One was Pete Sinfield, who was an original member of Crimson, wrote all the words for the first four albums, was involved in the visuals and the artwork and stuff. And he'd gone on to be a very successful lyricist in the pop world and uh, had loads of hits with, you know, very big artists. So I chose him, um, not least of which because I thought, well, we can, we can chat about, uh, about Crimson. And, and he was great fun. We got on very well. He was, he's, he was, uh, uh, was a great dinner partner and bon viveur. And um, in 97, there was a launch of a box set of live recordings by the original band and Pete invited me and there was talk at the time Robert was suggesting maybe the original band get together and do a short tour and they document it and that didn't happen and but then Pete decided it would be a good idea to get a a, a, a group of kind of um, uh, former Crimson alumni to play the older material because the then current Crimson didn't touch any material really apart from one or two tunes they didn't touch anything pre-1980 and <clears throat> so they got this group together and they needed someone that could sing and play Robert's guitar parts and Peter suggested me. So I ended up in a band called the 21st Century Schizoid Band with uh, Mike Giles, his brother Peter Giles, uh, Ian MacDonald who wrote or co-wrote most of the first album and Mel Collins. And <clears throat> out of the blue, one morning my phone rang and it was Robert Fripp who I'd never spoken to before and was a childhood hero and one of the reasons I became a musician in the first place. Uh, and he phoned me up to ask me how rehearsals were going. And I said, it's, uh, it's been very difficult and three of the most unpleasant weeks of my life. And he laughed and said, yes, I thought that might be the case. So, um, and that's how I got to know him. And w- so we would talk about that. He became a kind, of, a kind of silent King Crimson Samaritan to get me through the experience. And then later on, he played on my solo record and we co-wrote something. And then we made an album together, a thing called A Scarcity of Miracles. Um, which also featured Mel Collins, uh, Tony Levin and Gavin. So actually five of what then became this current version of Crimson. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it happened. And then Robert had announced his retirement from, from music. So we were all rather taken aback to get a phone call in 2013 telling us that he decided to reform Crimson and would I like to be the lead singer and second guitarist. Must be very flattering. I mean, when you met him for the first time, when you spoke to him, when he called yeah. you for the first time, having been a childhood hero and having had that experience at age 11, yeah. that must have been quite something. It was. It was absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, the whole thing's been extraordinary. And uh, I think what, one of the things I, I, I love about it, apart from it being this kind of mad childhood dream made flesh, was that, you know, I've been a professional musician almost since I was about 17. And I've been through the peaks and the troughs and done all sorts of different things. And, and it's very easy to get kind of burnt out and cynical about, about the music biz in particular. So to then find yourself in what was your favourite group and the reason that you became a musician in the first place, that's an amazing thing to be able to do, to kind of go back to the source of, listen, let's forget all, the, all that other rubbish. What, what was it about this that made you excited and want to do this in the first place? So it's been an amazing... Uh, privilege here.
This is Paul Robinson. This is Private Lives. My guest is Jacko Jatsik from King Crimson. And we're talking about his uh, life as King Crimson, but also his solo career. So um, we, you're in 20th Century Schizoid Band. How long did that project last? Um, it lasted about four years, maybe. I think we did, we did an initial tour and we did some shows in Japan. And then uh, Mike left, the drummer. And we replaced him with Ian Wallace, who'd replaced him ironically enough, in Crimson, uh, and was he was the drummer in Crimson when I first saw them in, in 71. Um, and yeah, we, we, you know, it was like a, almost like a glorified hobby, but we could play big places. We went to Russia, we, we sold out a big theatre in St. Petersburg, um, the cultural centre in Moscow, just off Red Square. And we played around Europe, played in Greece, we played in Italy, we played in France. So yeah, um, and then it kind of ended because um, Ian Wallace, who, who'd done, uh, you know, had been a very successful kind of side man after Crimson. He he was um, Don Henley's drummer. Oh right, whenever, so very mainstream. Yeah, the yeah. Eagles. Yeah, whenever Don Henley did solo tours, Ian was the drummer, and he also toured with um, the Traveling Wilburys. But he had a love of, of the, the Crimson stuff from back then, so he rather tragically died. So um, that kind of it all kind of came to an end, really. So that came to an end. But before that, you were yeah. telling me earlier when you were having your soup yeah. um, that you actually were signed as a solo artist to Stiff Records, which I must say I was a bit surprised by. Yeah, well, I um, I mean my history goes back to you know I, I had a band when I was sixteen that came third in the Melody Maker National Rock Folk Competition. I do remember those. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, we, we came third in 1975. I was 16. That's not bad because the winners never go into onto anything, do they? Really? No. Well, the winners that year were Deaf School, who did quite well, oh, did okay. reasonably well, and um, and you know that meant I was you know I was a wide-eyed 16, 17 year old, and we got management. And we started touring and supporting you know bands of that era. And, and who were you supporting? Oh, we supported Stackridge. Uh, okay. We supported Camel. Oh yeah, Camel. On their yeah, Snow yeah. Goose tour. I seem to recall. That was a big album. Uh, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Um, who else did we support? Oh, I did loads of people. Iron Maiden, I seem to remember. Not Iron Maiden. Um, Judas Priest, sorry. Okay. I apologise for confusing the two. No, well, they're both, uh, they're both metal bands. Yeah, yeah, of but a they sort. didn't exist back then, Iron Maiden. So, yeah, it was uh, Judas Priest. And then, uh, then I was in another band, and um, Dave Stewart, who was a, a hero of mine, keyboard player, who was in a band called Hatfield in the North and National Health. Um, I met him, I gave him a cassette of, of, of my band. He came to see us with Bill Bruford, who uh, Dave was in Bruford with him. And then he asked me to rehearse with them, and then um, then I sang on a single that Dave put out with Colin Bluntstone, and we did a load of TV stuff. Um, and then I toured with a band that Dave had, and his girlfriend at the time knew somebody at a label called Chiswick Records, and I played them a load of my demos and I signed to Chiswick Records. Chiswick was doing a lot of sort of rockabilly and yeah, R&B and, punk, and, and yeah. punk stuff. Although, again, you know, their biggest seller was a kind of rather more slick AOR band called Sniff in the Tears. Driver's Seat. Driver's Seat, you know. So I think they, they thought, well, here, this guy's doing something that's more akin to that. So I signed to them and made an album which never came out. So they thought you were the second sniff on the tears. Exactly, yeah. And they, that never came out, and the label kind of went down the dumper. Um, and then I made a recording. I did a recording of a song I'd written with Dave Stewart. He kind of financed it. And um, there was a lot of excitement about that. And uh, 
I ended up signing to Stiff because David had su- uh, success with Stiff and I'd seen how they'd operated. So I signed to Stiff Records and made an album for them, which didn't come out. Didn't uh, come out? No. What happened? Uh, well, Stiff went down the dumper and the whole thing just... Oh, right. Yeah. So, okay. And then I signed for a label called MDM, which were part of Virgin, and I made another album, and that album didn't come out either. Okay. So, so this is a bit of a sort of a, a non-purple patch for you. Yeah, well, it was a weird patch because I kept getting record deals with not insubstantial advances based on um, album sales that would never happen because the albums never came out. Oh, so you were so making money even without any product money, coming yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, and I, was, I worked a lot. I played on lots of records. Not as a kind of jobbing session guy, really, but um, I, most of the producers um, that worked on my records then would subsequently say, do you fancy working on this or doing an arrangement on this? Because they liked what I did, you know. So I ended up... Uh, yes, I was very busy and doing lots and lots of work. And then I think that... I, but I was frustrated in that, you know, I was getting to the age of 30 and I was still kind of waiting for my career to start here. Um, and then what happened then then, uh, then I met Tom Robinson we made an album together um, which I co-wrote and produced and he got great reviews and so this is what mid 70s now before, before the, the, his, the Tom Robinson band kept, became it's big after, it's after afterwards so okay. this is after I think it must have been one of the recordings after War Baby you know right so it's about 87 and um, as a result of doing that job, I got spotted by Mark King, and I joined Level 42. I was lead guitarist in Level 42 for about in five Level years. 42. Wow. Yeah, for about five years. Yeah. Okay. And how was how was that? Because again, uh, it was it's totally different to King Crimson. It was, it was, but it was a rare thing in that it was a band that was commercially very successful, but a band that also had a reputation for being really good players. Mm. And um, you know, listen, every, every guitar. The, the guy I replaced was a guy called Al Murphy. He played on lots of records, uh, Michael the Mechanics, and he did a lot of stuff with Go West, and he was Kate Bush's guitar player. Really great guitarist. So by the time I joined, the guitar had kind of become the featured solo instrument. So it was a great job to do. I loved doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, it was good fun. Well, fantastic, and some great names there too. So let's go. My guest is Jacka Jatsik from King Crimson. This is Private Lines on East London Radio, and that's Theme One by Van de Graaff Generator. So you've just been talking about your um, your pretty sort of illustrious time working with all sorts of uh, artists, and um, maybe slightly less successful time being signed as a solo artist. What happened next? Did you decide maybe it's time to uh, go back to being in a band again? Um, you mean after Level Forty Two? After or? Level Forty Two, five years of Level Forty Two. Well, I, uh, I did make a solo record that came out. Um, you did? I, yeah, finally. But on a tiny little label. And I had, I had various other projects. I had an all-acoustic band called Dysrhythmia with a double bass player that you may have heard of called Danny Thompson. Um, and Gavin, who's in King Crimson, and an Indian percussionist called uh, Pandit Dinesh. Um, and we made an album for Island Records, and that did, that did reasonably well, you know, for a little niche thing. So, yes, it was a combination of kind of uh, trying to survive doing, and doing interesting stuff. Um, I did some broadcasting. I did a number of bits and pieces for radio. I did a thing called Tuesday Lives, which was on Radio 4, um, which was a story about how I discovered my real mother in my 20s, having been adopted as a child. 
And that led on to a series of commissions by Radio 3, which were kind of experimental pieces utilising speech as part of the composition. And uh, I did a thing called The Road to Balinar, which was about... My, my, the, when I discovered my mother, I found out, uh, much to my surprise, that she'd been quite a famous singer in Ireland in the... Uh, 50s and 60s and fronted one of the big show bands out there so we went back to uh, Ballinar and interviewed the, the, the band leader and, and various others and then I flew my adoptive father back to Poland and he had an extraordinary story to tell um, he was living in Poland but conscripted into the German army because his father was German um, and he got captured by the French resistance but managed to persuade them that he wasn't German, he was actually Polish. So he ended up fighting for the Polish Free Army under General Anders against the Germans. Um, and uh, my adoptive mother was French. Um, she ended up, uh, she, was a, she was abandoned as a child but ended up uh, in Paris with her real mother and stepfather uh, who was a communist sympathiser so they had to flee during the occupation. Um, so anyway, so all of these stories are extraordinary and we interviewed them sometimes in situ. And then I pieced it all together and composed a piece of music around it and utilising it. And uh, that was the thing that we discussed earlier, this Sony-nominated piece called The Road to Ballinar. And then they recommissioned me to do another one. I did a piece about Mario Lanza. Um, again, because his life was mad and, and it had a lot of intrigue. And then more recently I did one with... Um, so Lenny Henry, uh, about the, the unlikely but uh, true story of the friendship between Groucho Marx and T.S. Eliot, um, in which we had access to the letters that they wrote to each other. And it was a part fantasy, part documentary, part kind of musical thing using similar technique. That's Jacko Jatsik of the legendary avant-garde band King Crimson, who are eager to get back on the road. Thank you, Jacko. And before that, my thanks to my former boss and fantastic musician, Dave Cousins. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. Stay listening to Podcast Radio for more Private Lives very soon. We are East London Radio. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast.